Hello all, and welcome back to the Maritime History Podcast. Today we have episode 18, an episode that I'm going to call The Beginning of the End. We finished up last time looking at some theories about the historicity of the Trojan War, but we also looked at the broad trend of the Bronze Age powers around the Mediterranean. That trend was, as we saw, on a decidedly downward slope, and today we'll begin to see the angle of that slope steepen even further. Seeing as how we're on episode 18 right now, if we go by our canonically numbered episodes anyway, I thought that it might be worthwhile to try and end our look at the Bronze Age by episode 20, at which point we can perhaps take a whirlwind tour review episode through everything that we've talked about so far. I'd also like to try organizing the different major periods and topics of focus into what we could call seasons. So, for example, our first 20 episodes about maritime history in the Bronze Age, we could call season one. And then we'll take season two to look at the start of the Iron Age, with topics like the emergence of the Phoenicians, the rise of Greek sea power, and some interesting battles and other topics. Maybe the Delian League, the Peloponnesian War, etc. I think season two will really be our season of examining the first true Thalassocracies, so it's kind of hard for me to say how many episodes we might end up with there when it's all said and done, but that's what we'll see as we go. Let me know any thoughts on that game plan moving forward, but for now, let's open the book on today's episode. I think an appropriate page on which to start today is on that concerning the city of Ugarit. This city will be somewhat central to our story today, and next time, probably, and it's a city that doesn't really get a whole lot of attention when it comes to discussion of Bronze Age history, at least not outside academic circles that I've ever seen. Ugarit is among the oldest of cities on Earth. It was occupied in Neolithic times. Archaeologists have dated its oldest fortified wall to around 6000 BCE. The city reached its pinnacle period beginning in 1800, and as for its end, well, we'll get to that next time, probably. Ugarit was situated on a headland, or cape, in northern Syria, putting it in prime location to be a trade center for the region. And what's more, this port city also sat at the perfect location to serve as an entrepot for the overland trade routes to the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. All in all then, Ugarit was a trade center utilized by almost every Bronze Age civilization. It's been called by one writer the premier international port of its time, the Hamburg or Rotterdam of the late Bronze Age. There's a remarkable letter found in Ugarit that introduces us by name to a wealthy merchant from the city. His name was Sinarinu, and right around the year 1260 BCE, we know that he sent a ship to Crete. This trade connection between a Levantine city and an Aegean island is something that we've seen multiple times now, so really no big surprise here. The intriguing aspect of this letter is that it's an official letter. 
a declaration that upon returning to Ugarit, Sinaranu's ship, full of grain, beer, and olive oil, is exempt from the standard royal tax. I suppose this could be some Bronze Age tax incentive at work, a palace official or king seeking to incentivize trade. This seems to have been a common practice in Ugarit, and probably not this city alone, for there are texts exempting other merchants from any tax on trade with Egypt, the Hittites, and another smudged-out land that we're not sure which one they were referring to. Trade with the Hittites makes sense, as the royal house of Ugarit was a vassal state of the Hittite Empire, allied by marriage, but still documented as sending lavish amounts of tribute to the Hittite capital of Hattusha. Sinaranu's ship sailed around 1260, as I said, so trade was still alive and well at that point. On a broad level, the state of affairs around the Mediterranean at this time was as we've discussed. Egypt and the Hittites clashed at Kadesh in 1275 BCE, but they subsequently hashed out a treaty. Meanwhile, the Mycenaeans honed their raiding skills along the western coasts of Anatolia, possibly fighting the Trojan War, but assuredly stirring up trouble to their east. We've speculated that the Mycenaean meddling in Anatolia roughly coincided with the emergence of Cyclopean architecture at the Mycenaean palace cities around the Aegean. This was the addition of great walls around their previously unfortified palaces. The stones used for these walls so large that later peoples thought that the walls must have been constructed by the mythical Cyclopes, or the Cyclops of myth. One possible interpretation for the emergence of these Mycenaean fortifications is that the palaces had become vulnerable in a way that they'd not been previously. As has been our theme of late, we really don't know the causes behind these occurrences, though. We simply see the symptoms of something that's still hidden beneath the surface of the past. So, we've now visited Ugarit and re-established our bearings in the late Bronze Age. Where to from here? This time period is probably the most difficult yet, so in my mind, I think that we'll ultimately be better off if we get the bird's eye view of what is about to happen. Sketch in the lines, if you will. After we know some of what's to come, the details will make a lot more sense, and they won't seem like a fixation on one tree to the detriment of the forest. Lastly, keep in mind that this series of events is simply the best way that current archaeology can reconstruct the timeline based on what we've found so far. The dates are useful in giving us a theory about how the late Bronze Age collapse may have played out, and they're relatively accurate based on most chronologies but we really can't know for sure how accurate these theories are. Despite that caveat, here is my bullet point summary of current theory, after which we'll zoom in on some fascinating details. Our look at the Bronze Age world has shown us that from at least 1500 BCE, 
the Aegean and the Eastern Mediterranean were heavily involved in a complex international trade of raw materials and finished goods, trade that only grew in complexity as the societies that engaged in the trade also prospered and grew. We call this entire period the Bronze Age because bronze weaponry and instruments were the central pillar of the trade networks and societal growth. Bronze is a composite of copper and tin, and as we saw from the evidence of shipwrecks at Uluburun and Cape Geladonia, copper and tin were traded in their raw and finished forms. I'm not sure how much stock to place in this statement, but Carol Bell, a scientist and archaeologist focusing on the Bronze Age collapse, has a really interesting take on the economics of the Bronze Age and what possibly drove the collapse. In her view, tin in the Bronze Age held a similar strategic importance to crude oil in today's economies. It was a pillar of exchange and the key piece in maintaining stability across the global economy. This is worth mentioning here, though it will also come into play later in the story. Then, the Uluburun wreck has been dated to 1300 BCE, the Galadonia wreck closer to 1200. The Uluburun wreck was the loss of a much wealthier cargo, so we know that high-level trade continued in the year 1300 and beyond, and that Levantine merchants were quite active in that trade. Moving on, in our look at the basis for the Trojan War myth, we saw that Mycenaean raiders were active in Anatolia for much of the Bronze Age, though things seemed to have picked up after the year 1300, with more signs of fighting and destruction in Anatolia after that point. This increase in raiding and fighting evidence can be seen in relation to two main points. After 1300 BCE, the Hittite Empire had begun to decline in power. At the same time, the Mycenaean palace centers, city-states, basically, also seemed to have seen trouble. Earthquake damage is evident, and signs of economic stress begin to emerge. It's in 1280 BCE that we have our first mention of a group that was part of what came to be known as the Sea Peoples. The Shardana are mentioned by name on a stella from Tanis, a location in the Nile Delta where Ramesses II claimed to have defeated the rebellious Shardana in a sea battle. The assumption is that Ramesses must have taken some of the Shardana captive after defeating them, because in his inscriptions regarding the Battle of Kadesh in 1275, he mentions them again, saying that they fought for him as part of his personal bodyguard. Skipping ahead now to 1250 BCE, which is the rough time frame where some have placed the historical Trojan War, at this point Mycenaean palaces and Troy itself show signs of destruction by earthquake. We've talked about this in some detail already, so the main point here is to re-emphasize that the centralized, palace-controlled Mycenaean economies were beginning to weaken. This can explain at least part of the reason for their forays into Anatolia, to capture slaves and goods. 
Such rating would only provide a temporary solution, though. Later on, in 1230 BCE, the Hittite army was defeated by the Assyrians at the Battle of Nehiria. The Hittite defeat didn't destroy their empire immediately, but it certainly consigned the empire to ultimate collapse, and it signaled a shift of power away from the Hittites. They would be completely gone within 30 years of the battle. Before the final destruction, we have recorded that in 1210 BCE, the Hittite king had to fight off an invasion fleet coming from the direction of Cyprus. He employed ships from Ugarit in making his defense, a defense which was ultimately successful. But the invasion itself shows that the island of Cyprus had probably become a staging ground for invasion forces, and that the king of Cyprus had lost control of at least part of his island. In fact, it's likely that Cyprus had been a staging point for seaborne raiders over a substantial portion of the Bronze Age, although it seems to have increased late on. Three years after this invasion from Cyprus, in 1207 BCE, we see the first mention of the group that we commonly call the Sea Peoples. We'll look in much more detail at the various inscriptions describing this invasion in the coming episodes. The inscriptions summarily describe an invasion of Egypt by what the Egyptians called Libyans, along with a group called the Sea Peoples. This group was made up of five or six separate ethnic groups that are listed on Egyptian monuments, and which give us some insight into where these invaders may have originated. By the year 1200 BCE, things had well and truly come unraveled. Earthquakes had rocked the Aegean and portions of the Mediterranean since 1225. Famine and drought had begun to become an undeniable problem around the Bronze Age world as well. The dates for city destructions vary around the various regions, but it's quite clear that by 1200, many cities had already been destroyed or abandoned. Perhaps the chief of these cities was Hattusha, the capital of the Hittite Empire. It was destroyed and subsequently abandoned in 1200 or thereabouts. The Hittite Empire would not be rediscovered for another 3,700 years. Destructions continued for a period of decades, though again we'll be more specific in time. Ugarit was destroyed in 1190 BCE, and the ruins of this once great trade center have recently revealed a wealth of textual evidence that will give us some insight into the dying moments of a Bronze Age city. Then in 1180 BCE, the destruction of city and palace centers becomes more pronounced in Mycenaean Greece. Pylos is ruined, as is Troy 7a. In the ensuing years, yet more palace centers are abandoned or destroyed, among them Beisha, Tiryns, Lefkandi, Kynos, and Mycenae itself. The most remarkable and most revealing event of the Late Bronze Age occurs in 1177 BCE. Inscriptions from the mortuary temple of Ramesses III at Medinat Habu 
tell and show us a great series of battles between Egypt and the Sea Peoples. Some of these battles happen on land, while there's a breathtaking inscription that depicts a chaotic naval battle that Egypt again claims to have won. Ultimately, the effects of the Late Bronze Age collapse continued to play out even past 1177 BCE, which is the last date where we see explicit mention of the Sea Peoples. After that point, the Assyrians became dominant, and although the Egyptians retained a smaller measure of their once great power, it was quite weakened. The Levant saw a shakeup, and it's thought that a substantial portion of the Sea Peoples settled there. From this region, the Phoenicians would become a great maritime power. Meanwhile, a period of decline occurred in the Aegean. Although I hate to use the term Dark Ages, it is a succinct term to attach to post-Bronze Age Greece. Okay, that's my bullet point summary. I really didn't go into much detail at all there. I just wanted to give you an idea of where we're going to be heading. What we can say at the outset of our detailed discussion now is that we know fairly well how things operated at the height of the Bronze Age, the year 1300, and in the century before that even. We also know pretty well how things ended up around 200 years later, in 1100 BCE, when the Cyclades had been largely abandoned, mass migration and shift had occurred, and the Assyrians had become powerful with the Phoenicians emerging to their south in the Levant. Our focus now is going to be the jumbled mess of what could possibly have happened in between those two bookends, especially in the century between 1250 and 1150 BCE. As I included in the list a moment ago, the first clear mention of a seaborne threat connected to the enigmatic sea peoples is found on a pair of stelae commissioned by Ramesses II, both of them referring to an incident that happened around the year 1280 BCE. Let's take these in turn then, shall we? The stela found at Aswan recounts Ramesses' claim to have destroyed the warriors of the Great Green, so as to let Egypt spend the night sleeping peacefully. It's fairly well established that in naming the Great Green, Egypt was referring to the Mediterranean, at least in this context. Aswan then tells us that Egypt was invaded by seaborne invaders, but it's the second stela found at the site of Tanis in the Nile Delta that affixes a name to these warriors, a people that Ramesses called the Sheridan or Shardana. On this artifact, Ramesses tells us this story. Quote, As for the Sherdan of rebellious mind, whom none could ever fight against, who came bold-hearted in warships from the midst of the sea, those whom none could withstand, he, Ramesses, plundered them by the victories of his valiant arm, they being carried off to Egypt as prisoners. Now, I'm no Egyptologist, and I'm certainly in the dark when it comes to hieroglyphics, but in a fascinating paper about the ships used by the Sea Peoples, archaeologist Jeff Emanuel points out that the inscription on the Tennis Stella 
describes the clash with the Sheridan in a unique way. It appears that the Egyptians were forced to invent a new word to describe the type of ships used by the Sheridan, a term roughly translated as warship, or more literally, ships of fighting. This is a bit strange, since the Egyptians had certainly used ships in a military setting before, and were intimately familiar with many types of sailing vessels, as we've seen by now. I apologize for tantalizing you with this interesting tidbit right now, but it can only be fleshed out later on, toward the end of the events involving the Sea Peoples, since it's at that point that we have a depiction of their ships that can inform this new word that the Egyptians conjured up. A little sneak peek, though, just to uh, hopefully keep you coming back in the future. There is solid evidence from the later depictions that the Sea Peoples did indeed sail on a unique and more developed type of ship, so definitely stay tuned over the next two episodes for some more on that. Moving on from the appearance of Sheridan and their defeat by Ramesses II in 1280, it's interesting to see them pop up again only five years later. This time, they're connected with Egypt again, but here they're fighting for Egypt. The battle is none other than the significant Battle of Kadesh, a battle in 1275 where Egypt clashed with the Hittites at the extreme edge of the empires, a region that they both hoped to bring more fully within their control. The battle took place at Kadesh, as I said, which is in modern-day Syria. So, even more than 3,000 years ago, world empires made Syria the site of their struggles for power. I feel like I'm saying this more frequently as the podcast grows, but some things never change. There's nothing new under the sun, or however else you want to phrase it. Anyway, the detailed records of what Ramesses claimed as his victory at Kadesh tell us that a contingent of Sheridan warriors fought as part of his personal bodyguard. We have no proof, but it seems reasonable to think that he'd taken some prisoners in that first battle with the Sheridan, and incorporated them into his bodyguard. Now, we could get into the depictions of the Sheridan taken from Ramesses' accounts of the Battle of Kadesh, but I think that would bog us down just a bit more than I'd like to. The other relevant info to come from Kadesh is that two groups that later would fall under the heading of Sea Peoples were fighting for the Hittites at Kadesh, against Egypt. These two groups were the Karkasha and the Luka. The Karkasha don't really pop up after this that I've been able to track, but the Luka should sound familiar to you, back from episode 14. They were mentioned in the Amarna letters, and they were variously described by the Hittites and Mycenaeans as being pirates, raiders, all-around rebels. They occupied southern Anatolia, and their name likely stuck around in the region, because that area later came to be called Lycia, or Lycia, pretty similar to Luca. It makes sense, considering their Anatolian origin, 
that the Luca would have fought on the side of the Hittites. They probably had a vassal state treaty with the king, just like the Dardanoi who also fought for Hattusha at Kadesh. So maybe we even have the Proto-Sea Peoples fighting alongside the Trojans and others for the Hittites against the Egyptians on a battlefield in Syria. Wow, that's really eerily similar to the modern day and everything that's going on over there right now. Not to even bring into it the idea that maybe some of the focus at Kadesh was over control of tin and trade routes. Some people think that the events currently going on in Syria right now have a little bit more to do with oil than some people would like to let on, but that's just my theory, and I think it's kind of interesting. At the end of the day, it seems that these Bronze Age powers who fought to a pretty much draw at Kadesh knew that the geopolitical situation was irreversibly against them at this point. There were a few more skirmishes in the Levant where Ramesses took some cities from the Hittites, and the Hittites took some cities from Ramesses. But 15 years after the Battle of Kadesh, the Hittites and Egyptians hashed out a treaty. This amazing treaty, which is dated to around 1260 BCE, seems to have been a move by the Hittites to bring their war with Egypt to a halt. Not because they wanted to, mind you, but because they had much bigger problems, much closer to home. It's here that the story really begins to get murky from a historian's standpoint. That's because there's no explicit mention of the Sea Peoples in Egypt for quite a while after Kadesh. And, well, okay, I need to clarify something at this point also. The term Sea Peoples wasn't used until Ramesses III fought them later on, in 1177 or so. Before that point, we simply have mention of various smaller people groups that are then lumped together in the records from 1177 as entering Egypt together, in a confederation of sorts. Even then, though, the Sea Peoples weren't one ethnic group, not even close. They were a conglomeration of displaced peoples from around the Bronze Age world, all looking for a new home, in all likelihood. Okay, now that that's clarified a little bit, let's talk about why they would have left their homes at all, and why they were on the move, some of them as early as 1280, but a much larger group of them not for another hundred years after that. So as I had begun saying, it's around 1250 BCE that the story begins to get well and truly murky. We talked earlier about how it's at this point that the precariously balanced economic and political structure of the Mycenaean city-states begins to tip in the wrong direction. Their raiding in Anatolia is a sign of this, as is the appearance of their Cyclopean architecture. This uptick in defensive building seems to have been prompted by a wave of destruction at various locales around the Aegean in the years around 1250. Thebes was destroyed, and there are indications that a portion of Mycenae was also burned. Some scholars theorize that this wave of attacks is what prompted the Mycenaeans to build their Cyclopean defensive works, 
particularly at Mycenae, but this is really only a guess. Not much happens as far as invasion in the Aegean in the two decades after 1250, but it appears that the situation for the Hittites continued to decline. This decline culminated in the Battle of Neheria in 1230 BCE, which was a death knell of the Hittite Empire, even though the empire struggled on for another few decades. The battle was itself the culmination of a conflict between the Hittites in Anatolia and the rising power of the Middle Assyrian Empire to their east in Mesopotamia. These two powers clashed over control of the region in between them, a region that had previously been controlled by the Mitanni, who had since fallen by the wayside. The city of Nehiria lay on the Tigris River, in the southeastern corner of modern-day Turkey. And to make a long story short here, the Assyrians won a huge victory, a victory that shifted the balance of power in the region away from the Hittites and toward the Assyrian king, Takulti Ninurta. It's interesting here, then, to note something that Klein points out in his book. And to do this, we need to place Assyria's eclipse of the Hittites next to our knowledge that the Hittites and the Mycenaeans didn't get along very well. After his victory at the Battle of Neheria, there's some evidence that the Assyrian king sent a generous gift of lapis lazuli to the Mycenaean king at Thebes. It's a little bit of a stretch to read a lot into this, but as I said, it's certainly worth noting. The last major item of concern today is to see how the Hittites reacted to their defeat, and how it may be more evidence of a Mycenaean campaign of raids along Anatolia's western coast, both before the year of 1225 BCE, but perhaps even up until that point. The Hittite reaction to their defeat by Assyria came in the form of a treaty, this treaty signed with the king of Amaru. Amaru was a kingdom that extended to the coasts of northern Syria. Now, if we take into account the fact that the Assyrian Empire didn't have any direct access to the Mediterranean, we can connect the dots to see that in making a treaty with Amaru, the Hittites were probably seeking to cut off Assyria's trade access to the Mediterranean, and to Mycenaean goods in particular. This goal is actually spelled out crystal clear in the treaty in several places. The first place is right at the beginning of the treaty, which begins with the parties to the treaty, saying, quote, And the kings, who are of the same rank as myself, the king of Egypt, the king of Babylonia, the king of Assyria, quote. And then there's a party that was intentionally crossed out, the king of Ahiawa. Apparently in 1225 BCE, the general time that the treaty was written, the Hittites still didn't consider the Mycenaeans to be their friends, nor were the Assyrians. So here, in concrete text from the Bronze Age, we have a case of my friend's enemy is my enemy. The Hittite king who drafted this treaty stated as such, though in converse terms. 
The Hittite king's scribe wrote the following in the treaty, and the term your here is referring to what the king of the Hittites expected the king of Amaru to do as part of his deal. It reads, If the king of Egypt is the friend of my majesty, he shall be your friend. But if he is the enemy of my majesty, he shall be your enemy. And if the king of Babylonia is the friend of my majesty, he shall be your friend. But if he is the enemy of my majesty, he shall be your enemy. Since the king of Assyria is the enemy of my majesty, he shall likewise be your enemy. Your merchant shall not go to Assyria, and you shall not allow his merchant into your land. He shall not pass through your land. But if he should come into your land, seize him and send him off to my majesty. Let this matter be placed under oath for you. So here we again see the treaty of cooperation between the Hittites and Amaru, and the reality that it looks like the Hittites were trying to cut off Assyrian access to any trade on the Mediterranean. This is made even more explicit in a later line from the treaty, where the Hittite king says flat out, quote, You shall not allow any ship of Ahiawa to go to him, the him here being the king of Assyria. We've seen the text of the treaty then, and it seems that in large part, the Hittites were coming under pressure from all sides, hence their treaty with Amaru. They apparently hoped to neutralize the growing strength of the Assyrians to their east, and their harsh treatment of the Mycenaeans here, Ahiawa was the name that the Hittites called them, shows us that they also had problems to the west. I'll stop there for now, but at the start of our next episode, we'll see that these weren't the only threats that were hounding the ever-shrinking edges of the Hittite Empire. More threats came from the south, born on the Mediterranean Sea, possibly emanating from the island of Cyprus. We'll look at that next time, as well as the role that Ugarit played in the dying stages of the Hittite Empire, plus the growing destruction that swept the Bronze Age world around 1200 BCE, some of it at the hands of the Sea Peoples, some of it not. That's the plan for episode 19, and then episode 20 I think will focus almost entirely on the Sea Peoples, their battles with Egypt, and the end of the Bronze Age. Alright, as I wrap up today, many thanks for the two latest iTunes reviews, those reviews coming from Dave Ram and from That Demmed Pimpernel. Dave, I'm very flattered by your kind words and thrilled that at least one person felt that the Trojan War episode wasn't just a confusing jumble of rubbish. I really enjoyed putting it together, and I'm glad that you got some enjoyment out of it as well. And then to address the concern raised in the other review, I definitely plan to circle back and to look at some of the early watercraft of other cultures soon, probably in an episode or two in between our seasons. Thanks for your kind words of review as well, by the way. Next on, I want to thank Rick for becoming our most recent crew member on Patreon. I really appreciate the support, and I hope that more of you might be tempted to join the crew as well when I tell you that I now have a crew members-only section of the site set up. 
You can join by supporting the podcast on Patreon or through a PayPal subscription that's on the website. But once you join the crew, you'll get access to member-only episodes, special timelines, transcripts, and anything else cool that may pop up in the future. So far, members have gotten a bonus episode where we look at the myth of Jason and the Argonauts, including a look at the story, its possible meaning and origin, and a little bit of talk about just how enduring the myth has been throughout history. All that to say, if you've thought about supporting the podcast, your support can now get you something in return. Check out the website for more details if you're interested, and thanks to all of you for your gracious support of the podcast already. The last thing I wanted to share with you all today is a brief thought about a book that I'm currently in the middle of reading, but that I also wanted to mention to you all. The book is called I, Horatio, and it's, well, it's a work of fiction about the life and exploits of Horatio Nelson. But it's written in the style of an autobiography. The account is told from Nelson's perspective as he thinks back on the events of his life. The subject of this book, being one of the central figures of naval history, I would certainly recommend it for that reason. But it's also a decidedly unique approach to examining the life of Lord Nelson. The fictional autobiography approach allows us to get a much more intimate glimpse into the mind of Nelson in the context of both his famous naval victories and in the more personal events of his life. Now, I have to admit, personally, this approach is a little difficult for me to get into, because I don't tend to enjoy historical fiction, and that's largely what this is. Now, that being said, that's probably a personal preference and it's unrelated to the quality of the book itself. It's very well researched, and it's based in large part on contemporary accounts of the various battles and events. Then it's interspersed with letters written by Nelson to his wife or to some other of his romantic connections, so you certainly get a flavor for Nelson the man. I definitely recommend this book if you don't have a whole lot of familiarity with him or the naval engagements throughout his career. It's really well documented, and the book is a good overview of his life, albeit from an unconventional angle of approach. Research is certainly the book's strength, and if you can lose a single-minded focus on substantive history so as to get into the character of Nelson from his own eyes, then I dare say that you'll enjoy the book. As usual, I'll post links to the book on our website, as well as a written review. And then, for what it's worth, if any of you ever buy books, this book, or any others, that I recommend or discuss here on the podcast, please consider doing so through the links on the website. Most of the time, they're affiliate links, whereby the podcast can make a little money for the referral, and it doesn't cost you anything other than going to the website and following the link to Amazon or whatever other publisher you might purchase the book through. Alright, that's the episode for today. Please, as usual, get in touch with any feedback that you would like to share. Check out the new crew member options, please, and consider leaving us a review on iTunes if you've never done so.
Any and all of those are great means to support the podcast, and they mean a great deal in terms of helping us grow. I'm always thrilled when I see support from listeners continue to build. So thank you all for that support, and until next time, thanks for listening to the Maritime History Podcast.